And uh, the first one is, I want to share with you some of the uh, feedback we got from the the kind of listening and vision casting dinners from uh, earlier this year. Uh, Several of you have been asking, did we learn anything? What what is coming out of that? So I want to give you a little bit of an update uh, as we kind of continue to move through that process and go down that that trail. Uh, And then the second thing I want to do is I want to look some at Nehemiah. I want to look some at the book of Nehemiah and, and take some lessons from what Nehemiah is doing in the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem that I think can be valuable for us as we think about where we're headed as a church today. Uh, as we start, I, I want to talk to you about the, the vision meetings. Uh, for those of you who participated, we had somewhere between 85 and 100 members participate in, uh, depending on how you count them, five or six different dinners. Uh, we would go over there in the Family Life Center, and groups would sit in, in groups of five or six around tables with giant post-it notes, which are my favorite thing to write on ever, um, giant post-it notes. And, and we would ask them questions. The first thing we would ask is, uh, what do you love about Northwest? What makes you excited to be here? And we'd let them at their tables kind of come up with a group list, and then we'd put them up on the wall, and we'd look for commonalities. And, and then we'd ask them in, in the next round, uh, what are the obstacles that are going to keep Northwest from being the church God wants it to be. And we'd get that list up there and see what commonalities there were in doing this. And, uh, and we'd ask about what are your goals for Northwest in the future, in the next several years. And, and we'd begin to kind of process through what's enabling us, what's empowering us, what ministry ideas do you have. And we'd get them all up on the wall and we'd look for the things that came up over and over again. And the goal was, in doing this over several weeks, is that it would really give us good insight into the, what God has put on the hearts and minds of the members at Northwest. Uh, and a lot of things came out of that. There were some things that, we kind of, that came out of that that we went, boy, that doesn't surprise us at all. And there were other things that we went, oh, we needed to hear that. That's good for us to know. Uh, that's going on our to-do list. That's part of what Northwest needs to be trying to address in the, the months and years ahead. And so here's some of the things that came up. In the 16 tables that met, 14 or 15 of them in one form or another said, we love that Northwest Church of Christ is a diverse group of people that are different and that like each other. We love that there's people that are racially different, that speak different languages. We love that it's socioeconomically different, that there's people with all kinds of different ideas, and they come together and they call each other brother and sister. I love that. That's part of the core values of Northwest. And if you've been here very long, that's not a surprise. We talk about that a lot, that it's a blessing for our church family that we have people that come from all kinds of different walks of life and backgrounds in the room. We got to the next question. What are our growth areas? And almost all the groups said, but I wish we were better at it. I love that everyone's in the room, but I wish I had better, stronger relationships with people that are different than me. And and what we begin to see is in this and in other areas, when we began listening, is we love that there's some kind of challenges to our church family and community, and we wish we were better at bridging the gaps to one another's lives. And not just in terms of, of, of the diversity that's pretty obvious, Uh, One of the things that came out is we wish there was more intergenerational bridges in our church. We wish that our grandparents knew our little kids better. And I don't mean the ones they're related to. I mean the ones they're related to in Christ alone. 
that we want families that are connecting across generational lines and making a big difference. There's a big desire in this church uh, for the Spanish and English ministries to intersect more, for us to come up with more ways uh, for us to cross the language barrier between our Spanish and English-speaking members. Uh, there is an, a belief that, uh, that Northwest is warm and welcoming to visitors, that when visitors come in, uh, they have a tendency to say, you guys seem to like each other and you're not that mean to me. <laughs> Those are kind of nice. Uh, and yet, at the same time, there was this observation, and this one kind of went two ways, that why we're a very warm and welcoming environment, that sometimes for new people, it can be easy to stay on the fringes for a long time at Northwest, having a hard time getting really lifelong friendships or really getting plugged into ministries. Uh, but for those who are able to make that, that move where they're very involved and checked in and have good relationships, they consider it one of the strengths of Northwest. We are a family, but sometimes... You know, when you're a new person at someone else's family reunion, it takes a while to make it feel like it's your family reunion. And that came out in different ways, and it made us think, boy, we could probably find better ways to do this more intentionally. One of the things we found is that while a lot of our members love the ministries that we offer to families, is that we do have this need for more intergenerational stuff. There's a real tendency in churches today uh, to put every age group in its own little silo. So you've got your, your children are over here, and your teens are over here, and your college ministry is here, and your young adults and your older adults, and never the two shall meet. And you separate everyone, and you think as long as everyone loves their silo, they're going to be happy at church. Uh, at Northwest, we want to just bust all of those to pieces. Okay, and it's not to say that we won't have youth ministry and stuff, but I want our youth ministry to be connected with our 39ers and our, uh, our freedom to serve ministry and our children's ministry, and we want this to be a family when we come in the room, not a bunch of people who know the people that are their age and in their life stage. Uh, so we need to continue finding ways uh, to bring that together. And COVID's made that tougher. Uh, it just has. One of the best things you can do to break down some of those, those barriers is eat together and play together. And so we're going to keep eating together and playing together and finding more opportunities to do that going forward. Um, one of the things, and this was one of the things that, that as soon as we started hearing it, we knew it was true and we needed to start really getting into it. Um, Northwest, over the years, has not always been good at at our teens staying involved at Northwest as they move into being young adults and adults. And I don't just mean the ones that, that are going to church somewhere else. I'm, I'm thrilled if we raise our young people to leave this church and go find a church family and get plugged into it in a way that's, that's leading towards their salvation. We've won. But when we have our young people who in their 20s and 30s are saying, hey, I, I don't know if church is for me anymore or if this God thing is real, uh, I'm just kind of going to go do my own thing. We've failed our kids. And so we need to make sure that, that we're doing things to improve how we get kids into youth ministry and the youth ministry into young adulthood and young adulthood into all the things that come with just, you know, adulthood. But that we are instilling in our kids a lifelong faith. We asked the teens, we did one of these groups with the teens, uh, and asked them, uh, how many of you think that when you're 30, uh, that you'll still go to church. Not all of them do. Even now, our teens uh, aren't sure if faith is something they want for their entire life. 
So we talk to them about that. We talk to them about what it is that they're looking for in a church. And, and I'll just tell you right now, I, part of my goal at Northwest is that in 10 years, I'm preaching at a church that my kids want to be a part of. And I think that as we're leading at Northwest, if we're not asking, what does it look like for us to be a church that, that has a faith and it has principles and it has a mission in the community that our kids think is worthy of being part of, if we're not doing that, what are we doing? We need to be looking to that group as the next generation and current generation of examples and leaders for the church. One of the things that came up is that, that a lot of times the political and, and conflict orient people get in fights on social media. Do you guys know this? Has anyone ever seen anyone get in an argument on social media? Sometimes it happens. Um, if, you've, if you've been on the internet in the last week or two, you'll know that a firestorm has broken out in central Oklahoma. Uh, as our entire community has been in an uproar about when you give out candy if Halloween is on a Sunday. And I'm not going to tell you what side I'm on because I'm afraid you'll quit listening to the rest of the sermon. People are upset. Um, and I saw a graphic the other day uh, that, that, you know, Yukon and Edmond and a few other areas were last night. Oklahoma City is tonight. I don't know if you know this. Surrey Hills, like, split off from Yukon, and there is some kind of a rebellion on the west side of the city you just need to be careful about. Um, but if you didn't get candy last night, Surrey Hills and Oklahoma City are open for business, so have fun tonight. Um, people have been mad about trick-or-treating. And that's not to even mention the things that actually matter in our world. People get hostile. One of the things that we're working on with the leadership right now, and, and it's been in the works for a couple of months, is our elders and deacons and ministers are going to be committing to a covenant with one another to hold each other accountable to how we behave on social media and the Internet. Uh, so we're going to be sharing that once it's kind of completed and, uh, and we all agree and, and covenant to one another with that. We're going to share it with the church and say, this is what your leaders commit to doing. Right. Now, it's not so that you can get on and be like, Ahem, we'll hold each other accountable. We don't need you to do it, right? Uh, Accountability is a fun thing. Uh, but we're going to try and get better at that so that hostility on the Internet is not causing divisions in Christ's body. One of the things we learned about is, is that Northwest loves its long history of supporting and giving towards missions. And yet at the same time, one of the things that we were surprised to learn, that didn't surprise us, we know how good we are at giving to missions. But a lot of people said, but you know what? Not many of us are actually sharing our faith with our mouths and actions in the communities that we live in. We're not actually being evangelistic. And so we need to, to build some things. It's one of the things I love about the Alpha class we've got on Wednesday nights right now. One of the reasons when that became available that we went, yes, start now, go, is that it's like this is a tool that enables people to talk about faith in non-intimidating ways with, with friends and neighbors and people in the community. And it's like, oh, it turns out we need that. Let's go. Let's get started. And we launched it immediately. In fact, if you're wanting to do more of that, get involved in the Wednesday Night Alpha class. We need to find more ways to do evangelism and to get engaged with our community. Pants and Pancakes was an amazing ministry for over a decade. Uh, what's the next ministry that we're going to try out for a year that lets us have a bridge into the neighbors' lives around us and invites them into our building or invites us into the spaces where they are that lets us build relationships with them and say, we're Jesus in the world today. Who are you? We'd like to meet, and we'd like for you to meet our King, our King Jesus. 
We need to create those ministries, opportunities, and spaces. Uh, one of the things that we also heard as we talked, especially to our, uh, our families, is that they're tired. Our families are tired, and they're burned out. And as we talk about ideas, they'd say, listen, we just want more relationships with other people, but don't ask for any of our time to get them. It's like, well, okay. I'll get on that ministry task list right away. Um, deeper relationships, no commitment in it. You know, that should be no problem at all. Uh, so we're working on developing ministries that help you to have relationships with people with no commitment or time. Um, but I'm joking about that. Uh, what they're really saying is we want the relationships. Don't waste our time with things that don't give us that. We're hearing that. When we launch new ministries, we're asking the question, is this going to be a blessing or a burden to the people that come? And if it's a burden before we stop it, we're just throwing it in the trash. We're not interested in wasting people's time. We need meaningful ways to help people grow in the image of Jesus Christ and connected with one another in the body, bridging the gaps that exist between some of our members in meaningful ways, but in doing it in ways that are maybe more efficient than we've done in the past. They're, they're working differently and better. So we're exploring some of those things. Uh, one of the things we looked at is that we, we needed an, more leaders being developed. We need some discipleship and mentoring processes and, and ways to be raising up within Northwest, the next generation of leaders for our church family uh, and for the mission God's given us in the world. Uh, and then one of the things, part of that kind of leadership conversation uh, on a number of occasions was, uh, hey, if there's ways that women are leading in the New Testament and they're not leading in our church, we need to talk about that. We need to make sure that, that, that we are not putting barriers in the, the lives of people in our church that the New Testament doesn't put there. And so we're going to have those conversations. Our teens are extremely interested in that conversation. Uh, and so we need to get into Scripture and start looking at what are the ways that the Bible gives us examples of how to lead in times like this. Because the reality is that in the world that we live in, old ways of doing ministry aren't working the way that they used to, and we need to celebrate their successes in the past while re-envisioning what can work and make a difference in the world that we live in today. One of the beautiful things about the gospel is how much God created it in such a way that it translates into every culture and every time and every people. And it requires, this is one of the burdens, it's one of the reasons church planters will tell you um, church planting works really, really well because you don't have to deal with all the baggage that an established church gets from its past. Well, one of the things we're going to have to do as a church, if we want to be able to, to mission our way forward into the future, is we've got to kind of deal with some of the baggage of our past. And I think Northwest is the kind of place that's, that's well-equipped to do that. And part of the reason I do that is because I've listened to Northwest. This year, as we've had these meals, the church has said over and over again, if we're doing something just because we did it and it's not working and the Bible doesn't expect it of us, let's stop. And let's find something that the Bible does expect of us that we think can work, and let's experiment, and let's, let's take chances, and let's take risks. And so to have a church that's telling the leadership, hey, we're ready to go. If you'll just lead, we're ready to move. That's exciting stuff. It's exciting stuff. So I'm excited about what's ahead. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and say, now, because of this, here's our 10-point plan for the next 10 years. We don't have that yet. Some of these challenges are real. 
Some of these challenges are real. You know, one of the things I can tell you is that every week, someone would go through and write on at least one of the papers, uh, best preacher ever. And it was weird that it was always, it looked like my handwriting. I won't say that it was, but I'm, we're sure that's one of the strengths. That didn't actually, I didn't write that, and I didn't come up. What did come up a lot is that this church has a high level of confidence in its leaders, its shepherds, its servants, its teachers, uh, a long legacy of confidence in the leadership, and, and I think that that is important too. Uh, it's one of the reasons, um, you know, Bill, you and I have talked about this a number of times. It's really fun to talk to ministers who left Northwest because, boy, they really come to appreciate the leaders that serve here at Northwest. Um, and I think that's going to be vital for us in the years to come, is not just appreciating the leaders we have, but developing the next generation of leaders that are going to help guide us in the future at Northwest. Uh, and, and so it's as we think about that, that I want us to get into Nehemiah. And I want us to learn some lessons that exist here uh, from someone in Israel's history who had a challenge you know, there's so much going on right now about what is the church going to look like in the post-COVID world, and what is the church going to look like? In, in Nehemiah's time, the question wasn't, what does the church look like in a post-COVID world? The question was, what does the church look like in a, or what does Israel look like in a post-exile world? Indeed. Babylon comes in, destroys the walls in Jerusalem, destroys the temple in Jerusalem, takes off the wealthy, the rich, the nobles, the leaders, and, and puts them in Babylon in exile. And then eventually other empires come and destroy them, and they send Zerubbabel and, and some of the Jews back to Jerusalem with the commission that Evan talked about. Go and rebuild your temple. Write your stories. Tell your history. Become the people of Israel. And, and as the Jews go back to Jerusalem, they're trying to reestablish so much in Jerusalem, and it's not going well. And so it's 50 or 60 years after that return that Nehemiah is still in a foreign country serving a foreign king, and he's the cupbearer. And there's one day that he walks, into, he walks into the king's room, and the king looks at him, and he says, Nehemiah, you're usually pretty happy when you come in here, and you seem to be very sad today. Indeed. What's going on? He says, how can I be happy when the city that I love and that my people love is lying in ruins? Lord. It's lying in ruins. And we're going to begin today, actually, if you'll notice in my notes, we're not going where the notes are. We're going to start in, in Nehemiah chapter 1. We're just jumping straight into the story of Nehemiah. And, and what you need to know leading up to this is that Israel uh, was safe in Jerusalem behind their walls with their temple when they begin to rely on their walls and their temple more than on the God who lived in it. Yeah. And then when they begin to do that, and they trusted their earthly kings more than their heavenly king, that things started to go badly, and the walls were destroyed, and the people were removed, and the city lay empty and in destruction. And Isaiah is this book that does an incredible job of asking the question, who wasn't faithful, God or us, because we shouldn't be in exile and the walls shouldn't be torn down. And Isaiah the prophet says over and over again, if you had been faithful, the walls of Jerusalem would have stood forever. If you had depended on God to take care of you and not your walls, you would still be secure. If you had, had been obedient to God, He would have been faithful to you endlessly. So if you're in exile, it's not God's fault. 
And if you want to go back to Jerusalem, you're going to have to get your heart and your mind and your lives oriented towards God's law again. And I had a hard time doing that. And the the advice that's given uh, is over and over again, listen, while you're living in a foreign land with people that don't believe like you, which starts to sound more and more like the world we live in today as Christians, right? A foreign land with people that don't always believe like us, and we say, listen, we're going to be different. Uh, God tells his people then, live lives of intentional contrast. Don't give in to the pressures in the culture around you. Be my people in a foreign land, and if you're obedient and faithful, I will bring you home. I will always bring my faithful people home. Nehemiah then goes... Here's the beginning of his story. If you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to get into them because we're going to be reading through a lot of this text because we're not familiar with some of these Old Testament histories, and I want us to really hear the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, says this, In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, and this is, this is Nehemiah's great prayer. And you need to get this first, that before Nehemiah starts construction, before Nehemiah starts going home and, and launching his reconstruction plan, the first thing he does is he prays. Yes. Prays. Yes. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. What does Nehemiah want to do? He wants to go home and build the walls. What does he know the most important things are to doing that? Praying to God and confessing the sins of their past. He says, before we can build our future, we've got to deal with the sins of yesterday so that we can be obedient tomorrow. He knows that it's not the walls and the stones that are going to make the difference, that it is actually going to be a mission of righteousness that's going to restore the security of the city where God keeps his name. And so he begins by saying, God, I know that this construction project of stones is really about the reconstruction of hearts and the obedience of minds and of bringing the people back into living like your people in your place. So he goes to the king, and they have this whole conversation. Why are you so sad? It's because I, 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 I want to go back to my city. And so in, in Nehemiah 2, verse 
5, it says this, Then I prayed, the king says, What is it you want? That's verse 4. And then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. This is a city that everyone has just abandoned the walls, abandoned everything for about five decades. Fifty years, it's laid in ruin. Nehemiah says, I've just learned how bad it is. Let me go fix it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take? When will you get back? And it pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeping of the ro- keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because of the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. And the king also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. So the text that was read earlier in our service this morning, and he goes and he surveys the towers and he surveys the gates, and what he finds is total destruction, and the gaps are huge, and the rubble is dramatic. And there is total decay of the walls that surround Jerusalem. And it's so bad that in 50 years, everyone who looks at the task says there's no point, it's not possible. Even if we were to build, we don't have materials. Even if we wanted to do construction, the rubble is too significant that it has to be hauled away. Even if we tried to build, how could we get everyone on board? Even if we got everyone on board, the the neighbors and enemies that surround Jerusalem would be alarmed. And they would say, listen, we can't allow Israel to reestablish its defenses. Let us go and attack them. Let us go prevent them from rebuilding and becoming a, a powerful city yet again. And even if the neighbors didn't attack, what would get the people to stay focused at this point, most of the people are living out in the, in the surrounding villages and areas. They're not even in the city. Later, they're going to have to have a, a, a lottery to see who gets to come in and live in the city and repopulate it because it has become so worn down. And they replied when Nehemiah said to them, it's time to start rebuilding the walls. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. One person shows up and says, we should not leave God's house in despair and in destruction and in disgrace. And the people rally around him. And Nehemiah understands. He understands when he asked the king, can I go to and rebuild, that the king said yes because God's favor was with him. And when he calls the people, he understands that the people are responding because God's favor is with him. He sees the destruction and immediately is launched into action. And what happens is what everyone was afraid of. So listen to what happens in in Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 7. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. 
they all plotted together to come up and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Our enemies said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to this work. Then the Jews who had lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Wherever you turn, they're going to attack us. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall, at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. And after I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the men who, man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me, this is Nehemiah. And I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears. And from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. Do you feel the overwhelming sense of community? Do you feel how much that, that when the workers are out there and they say, listen, we're exposed working on the walls, they're going to attack us. The soldiers come up and said, we've got your backs. That's right. And the soldiers said, listen, we, we might get overwhelmed if they come and attack here. And the workers said, we'll carry our sword while we work. And they said, listen, but what about at night when we're weak? And they said, we'll all sleep with our armor on and our weapons on. We won't even go to our homes. We'll stay at our posts. And when we wake up, we'll start working. When we're asleep, we're on guard. And we'll work in shifts. And there will be no moment that we are not ready to respond. Amen. And they said, but listen, we'll be spread thin. And the walls are extensive. And there's so many repairs that need to be done. And Nehemiah says, listen, if someone gets attacked in a weak point, we'll sound a trumpet. And the stronger who are elsewhere will respond. We will work together so that no one will be overworked, overtaxed, overexposed, or threatened. We've got this with each other. We're a community that's going to completely make sure that there's no weaknesses because of our combined and united strength. And because they're able to do this, the enemies that are around them can't find a weak point to attack. They can't find a weakness. They can't find a place where they can go through because the people have a weapon in one hand and a hammer in the other and soldiers at their back as the gate gets built and the walls get built in front of them. So by the time we get to chapter 6, 
It says, When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply, I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. They're trying to get in the way and do harm to Nehemiah as he's trying to complete the task of setting the gates in the wall. And there's, we don't really know what the harm is. On the low end, it's that they wanted to distract him from the work that he was doing. On the high end of the danger, they wanted to assassinate him. It's somewhere in that range. Uh, the reality is, for many of us today, as we set our eyes and focus on what God has before us as a community, that we probably don't have many people that are setting out to assassinate us. But we certainly can fall victim to the enemy's ability to distract us. We can certainly fall victim to our enemy's ability to distract us from the important task that God's put in front of us. And not just with things like Netflix and streaming video and sports and finances and career and jobs, things that are both good and distracting and at times evil, but we live in a world that is filled with people that are trying to make money with our attention. And every time we give them our attention, they make a profit and we get a little less focused on the work that God's put in front of us. If we're going to make a difference in the world, one of the reasons we're going to make a difference is because we, like Nehemiah, say, I've got a great task in front of me, and while I'm working on it, I'm not coming down from here to your little distractions. And if you're going to do this, you have to protect your big yes with a hundred little no's. And do you know what I mean when I say that? What is your big yes? If your big yes is, I want to serve God and make a difference in his kingdom, then you can't say yes to every little show and distraction and social media blurb that pops up. If your yes is, I want to raise my children to be the next generation of Christian leaders, you can't say yes to every single school and program and sports activity at the cost of mission trips and youth group and all the stuff that, that you need to pour into them. You can't say yes to all the movies they want to watch and, and, and not focus on time on reading Scripture and, and having conversations about faith with them. You have to know your yes and protect your yes with a hundred little no's because it takes a, an army of no's and minnows to eat away at all of your glorious the visions that God has given you for your future. It's rarely that we choose a huge no to replace a big yes. It's usually that we get distracted and lose focus, and our life is squandered away to a lot of hundred little nothings. What's your big yes, and are you willing to protect it? Because Nehemiah did. That's what makes Nehemiah special in the story of Israel's history, is that he understood that this wall that had been neglected for 50 years needed prayer and righteousness and unity, and it needed courage, and he needed focus if he was going to get it together. And in 52 days, they rebuilt what had been ignored for 50 years. Yeah. Wonderful. 52 days. 52. The walls were rebuilt and the gates were set. 
There is no task that we cannot accomplish if God is with us. And listen to the description at the end of this. In, in verse 15, it says this. Uh, it says, So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Did God move the stones? Not in this story. Did God give them uh, miraculous strength from, from beyond and work? Did Samson show up? Not in this story. What did God do? What God gave them was the courage to not be worried about their enemies. What God gave them was a spirit of unity that allowed them to all work together and get each other's backs. What God gave them was when they started to feel weak, they said, God, give us strength to put one more stone on this wall, and he gave them strength. What God gave them is when distractions came and said, why don't you come on here to the field and we'll have a little meeting and see what we can work out. They said, we will not lose focus. And God gave them focus. And when they were done, they didn't say, look what we did with our unity and our courage and our focus. What they did is they said, look what we did through what God gave us and how God provided and how God has established the gates to his glory. And you know what they did? They started reading the Bible publicly because they said, listen, the walls are built, but it's not the walls that keep us safe. It's our obedience to God's law. It's our obedience to the righteousness God calls us to. As a church, if we continue to vision and mission our way forward, we're going to be able to do it not because of our skills. We don't have enough. Not because of our own wisdom. If we have it, it's only because God gave it to us. As we vision and mission our way forward, we need to know that we do it by the courage and the focus and the unity and the perseverance that God provides for His glory and that ours. And then we get to the work that needs to be done. Because one choice is to wait 50 years while the walls sit in disrepair. And the other one is to get to work with courage and focus. You need to respond to the gospel this morning that you can be one of God's children if you believe and are baptized so that you can be saved. Come forward this morning as we stand and sing.